At its peak, 8.9 million people were having their job artificially supported by taxpayers' money, by the government, and that's uh, about a third of the entire UK workforce. Such was the state of the lockdown and the way the economy couldn't operate. You know, what I will say is it's unfortunate that it's taken a global health crisis for government to take action to provide much-needed extra support to people already struggling to make ends meet. And the simple fact of the matter is that universal credit wasn't enough to live on before the pandemic. Over 11 million people have been furloughed in the last 16 months, and almost 6 million are currently on universal credit. But over the next week, the government's main emergency policies to help people through the pandemic will end. People on furlough will find out if their jobs are still waiting for them. And people on universal credit will find their benefits cut by £20 a week. So today, a nurse is at about £20,000 a year supporting her family. Well, actually, she's going to end up losing £1,700 a year, £1,000 to universal credit, £130 from the national insurance rise, and £570 from rising bills. A million people still on furlough, about 700000 will be at risk of redundancy. And to be doing it at the same time as you're cutting universal credit will not just push lots of families into hardship, but it will have a knock-on effect on the economy and on the recovery. So the combined effect that we're going to see here of people having their important benefits cut that they need to live on, uh, the increase in, as your correspondent said, the, the general cost of living, and then this on top of that could be catastrophic for millions of people in this country. The government seems to be acting like we're out of the woods of the pandemic. But are we really? With over a million people still furloughed, energy bills going up and benefit cuts kicking in, what kind of winter are we facing? And how can we make sure everyone has enough to live on for the rest of the pandemic and beyond? We do need to radically rethink what we do and how we support people, but removing urgently needed funds from the people who need it most is not the thing to do. It is too early to uh, withdraw the scheme now. Instead, uh, it, the government should keep it and tweak it, uh, keep it on standby because there is still so much uncertainty uh, for many businesses. I think what the government really needs is a plan to support working people, a plan to keep people in employment, yes, but also to keep money in their pockets as well. Welcome to the Weekly Economics Podcast. We're kicking off a brand new series by asking, will living standards be frozen this winter? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, I'm pleased to be joined down the line by Kate Bell, Head of Rights, International, Social and Economics at the Trades Union Congress. Hi, Kate. Hi, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. No worries. Thanks for being with us. And I'm also really happy to be joined by Neff's own senior economist and returning friend of the pod, Sarah Arnold. Hi, Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me back. No worries. Let's jump straight in then because we've got a lot to talk about. So I want to start by building up a picture. Uh, obviously, it won't be a pretty one, but a picture all the same of what this winter might look like for some folks in the UK. So We'll start with one of the big pandemic safety nets that's being scrapped this week, the furlough scheme. So, Kate, the TUC was involved in the development of the scheme right at the beginning of the pandemic. Can you tell us a little bit more about your involvement? 
Sure. And I think we should just take a tiny moment to feel a tiny bit cheerful that we got this scheme over the line in the first place. So this is one of the biggest labour market interventions the UK economy's ever seen. And as you were saying in your introduction, the stats show that 11.6 million people have used the furlough scheme at some point. And I think it's pretty clear it has prevented some of the really scary rises in unemployment that people were predicting. The TEC has called for a kind of wage subsidy scheme, which is what the furlough scheme is before. Um, We called for it in the financial crisis. And when it kind of became evident that large parts of the economy were going to be shut down, I don't think, I'm not claiming that we were predicting the scale of the shutdown. Um, We sort of scrambled to put together a proposal um, for a short-time working scheme, a wage subsidy scheme that could help protect jobs in this crisis. We sent that to that Treasury. We were slightly surprised when they picked up the phone to talk to us about it. But it was a very quick week when they were talking to us, they were talking to business representatives as well. And, you know, again, just a tiny moment of kind of recognition before we get into the grim stuff. You know, when the Chancellor announced the scheme, he thanked the TUC, he thanked the CBI, the kind of business organisation, and a kind of rare example of government embracing social partnership and a really successful one too. Absolutely. I mean, massive congratulations and, and thank you on that incredible work. And I think you're right. It's really great to start with with something cheerful and really important, I think, as well. Let's go a little bit deeper on how the furlough policy was actually kind of brought in and what it achieved in terms of preventing mass unemployment. So what kind of shift do you think that we've seen because of the furlough scheme? What would have happened if it wasn't there? Well, I think, you know, there's lots and lots of businesses that had to stop trading. And if there hadn't been some support for their jobs, you know, we would have seen those jobs go. And I think when you look at kind of the comparison between falls in GDP, in kind of economic activity and levels of unemployment, normally, like in the financial crisis, actually, when we see a big fall in economic activity, people lose their jobs. This time, unfortunately, many people did lose their jobs. We mustn't forget that, you know, that's been too many people's experience, but to a far lesser extent than have been predicted and to a far lesser extent than we've seen in previous recessions. And that's basically because the government was paying those workers wages, which gave a pretty strong incentive for employers to keep those people in their jobs, to retain their skills and to make sure that when businesses opened up again, people were ready to go back to work. I think it has actually, though, changed um, some of our expectations of what happens um, in these situations. You know, the previous situation was you lose your job, the government can't really step in. That's a kind of I don't know, a kind of basis of neoliberalism is, you know, the market's always right. Unfortunately, if you lose your job, that's just what happens. And when you do lose your job, you're forced to live on a really inadequate level of social security. You know, so before the uplift universal credit, which I know we're going to talk about as well, that was just over £70 a week. Furlough showed that we don't have to do it like that. We can protect people's jobs. And we can protect people's jobs on a decent level of wages. 80% of wages, of course, not enough for many people, not enough if you're on the national minimum wage. And, you know, the scheme was by no means perfect, but it showed the government could do something to protect people's jobs and it could do it at a level that many people could actually live on. That makes a lot of sense. So I think that I know what your answer to this is going to be, but do we still need the furlough scheme now? Hasn't the end of restrictions meant that it's all good and and we can scrap it and everyone will be fine? Well, you know, we really hope the economy is opening up and there's some kind of positive signs of that. But there are still some sectors really in trouble. So the aviation sector, for example, still got about half people in that sector still on the furlough scheme in kind of arts and culture. It's about 28 percent. Those are the latest stats. They're a bit kind of slow, the stats. So those are from July. And, you know, we have seen fewer and fewer people 
use the scheme as the economy is reopened. So it's not like, you know, businesses are just using this for the fun of it. And we think that a scheme could stay in place to support just those industries that really need it right now. The other thing we've been really pushing is that we need to learn the lessons of this and put in place a scheme that's there for the long term. So most European countries, most of kind of OECD countries, sometimes described as advanced economies, already had a short-time working scheme in place of some sort when the pandemic hit. So the UK had to kind of scrabble to get it up and running. We don't think we should be doing that scrabbling next time. You know, we know we're going to face other crises, whether that's a new variant. You know, everybody is hoping that doesn't happen, but the government hasn't ruled out future lockdowns. Or, you know, thinking a bit further ahead, there's big challenges the economy is facing. You know, you know, Neff's talked as much as anybody about um, the challenges of climate change, some of the challenges of automation. And we think that this kind of scheme in the future could help protect jobs in future periods of economic change as well. Indeed. So, so when the scheme ends this week, then just to kind of wrap up those thoughts, what will happen, do you think, to people who've been furloughed? I don't know if you have kind of research on this or uh, do you have information on what percentage of those people will just kind of lose their jobs, you know, and it's simple as that? I think, you know, anyone who's made a prediction during this pandemic has swiftly been proved wrong, basically. So I'm not going to kind of put a number on it. But I think we are concerned that, um, you know, some of those people will go back to work. And it's worth noting, you know, the businesses have had to pay some of workers' wages for the last couple of months of the scheme. So maybe there are some businesses who wouldn't have been paying those wages if they hadn't been planning on bringing people back. But I think there are sectors like the travel industry, which are going to see either hours significantly reduced for those staff or unfortunately jobs lost. And it's a really, really worrying time for people right now. Thanks so much for taking us through that, Kate. So we'll move on from furlough and to talk about another policy the government brought in at the start of the pandemic, which was increasing universal credit payments by £20 a week. And we've discussed this on the pod before. So this uplift is now going to be cancelled this week in the deepest overnight cut to welfare in UK history. So let's come to you on this, Sarah. What impact do you think this is going to have on people claiming universal credit? Well, it's clearly going to be completely devastating for the millions of people claiming universal credit. The cut will be worth over £1,000 to the around 5 million people currently on universal credit. And it's been a huge lifeline to many during the pandemic. I think the best way to understand the impact of the cut is to look at it from the point of view of kind of what different UK families actually need to get by, which is helpfully captured in in this measure called the minimum income standard, which we at NEF um, have been using to benchmark living standards. And we've recently conducted modelling which showed that when the uplift is removed, over 21 million people, including 7 million children, will live in households that don't have the amount they need to afford the basics. I mean, that's a huge number. And it will look different for different households. Some will be choosing between heating and eating, literally choosing between whether it makes sense to have some vegetables with their dinner or turn on the central heating. Others will be getting by all right, you know, managing the weekly shop okay until their boiler breaks or their kid needs new shoes or something like that, which means that there's just kind of anxiety and stress to make ends meet for the next few weeks or months. And either way, it's really not okay that that's happening in one of the richest countries in the world and when we can fix it. I'd also like to point out that, I guess, beyond the immediate impact on people affected themselves, it's a mistake from an economic perspective. It's bizarre that the Treasury is choosing to cut the incomes of so many people when it's clear the economy is not out of the woods yet. And in doing so, taking money out of the pockets of people most likely to spend to keep the economy moving. I mean, it certainly seems to 
to make sense to me, I was just actually um, chairing a panel at Labour Conference and one of the people, which was about uh, food banks by the Trussell Trust, and one of the speakers on that panel was someone who, who is going to experience this cut. She actually said she, she found it much more helpful to frame it as a 20% cut rather than £20 a week, which is quite easy to dismiss for a lot of people as what seems like perhaps a small amount. But what she kind of shared was that exactly as you say, this is going to mean not being able to visit her, you know, mum in the next city. It's going to mean not being able to cook, which is something she really enjoys doing because she can't have her oven on, you know, for more than 30 minutes. So she'll really have to think about, you know, what she can cook even when she gets the produce and just many more examples of how this cut will have a real term, you know, real life impact on her everyday experience and that of, you know, the people around her. I think you're completely right to to lift it up in that sense. The government says that we should be trying to raise people's living standards through work and pay rather than benefits. What do you think about that, Sarah? Well, I think there's lots of problems with that statement. I mean, firstly, just going back to your point about it being a a 20% a week cut. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's like a £20 cut from £70 a week, which is what the kind of the standard allowance is for a single adult without that. And that takes a huge kind of emotional toll, constantly having to make, you know, loads of different micro decisions about what you're going to eat, whether you can afford the bus fare, all these things, which makes it also very difficult to have kind of the brain width and the headspace to make meaningful decisions about work or be able to kind of make those applications, which is also pretty emotionally draining to constantly be applying for jobs um, and not always necessarily getting them. So I think it's a mistake from the perspective of making it more difficult for people to find work. But to just take a step back again, we do know that 66% of those people on universal credit are either already in work or are not expected to work, for example, because they're caring for a very young child or they have limited capability to work. So kind of presenting work and social security as completely separate routes out of poverty makes no sense to me. They should be working together and we need both living wages and a living income together, which is why I guess NEF is calling for a living income, which basically is attempting to provide a minimum income floor that's actually linked to need and that basically would ensure that everybody, whether in or out of work, would be able to afford the basics and to live in dignity. Yeah, I mean, as you say, they're obviously deeply interlinked, the two kind of different systems. I'm going to come to you just in in one second, Kate. But just before I do, I wanted to ask a question, which is a recent poll found that only 10% of people think that universal credit should actually be cut. So, Kate, why is the government going ahead with it? I mean, I couldn't begin to answer that question. (laughs) I mean, I think, you know, as Sarah said, it's absolutely a false economy. You know, cutting social security is not the way to create a better economy. And I think that's been proved time and time again. The thing I was going to come in and add to Sarah's point, which, you know, is one of the reasons the government's rhetoric around, well, we want people to work more is so ridiculous, is because of the way universal credit is tapered away. So as you earn an extra pound, you lose 63 pence of universal credit. That means that to earn an extra £20 a week, you'd have to work for an extra nine hours if you're kind of an average worker on the national living wage. And I just don't think that can be a reasonable response um, from government to say, well, you know, everyone who's facing this cut can now go and find an extra nine hours of work a week. I mean, I think, you know, there's this kind of myth out there that cutting benefits is popular. There's a myth out there that the response to the pandemic should be to cut government spending in order to kind of quote marks pay for 
the cost of the pandemic. Whereas actually what we've learned during the pandemic is that our collective welfare, our collective security is interlinked. The best way we strengthen that is by strengthening all of our well-being and cutting the universal credit by £20 a week is exactly the opposite approach. So yeah, I mean, let's let's talk a little bit more about the kind of government solutions then, and the, the ways in which they they differ from um, our own, perhaps. Which you know, is, if it wasn't enough to push people into unemployment and cut the benefits they can receive while they're there, the government, as we know, has also raised the amount of tax people will have to pay towards national insurance to make sure that they can raise more money for the NHS and social care in, in their explanation of that choice. So some have argued that this is targeting working people over the wealthy. Um, Sarah, let's come to you first on this. What are your thoughts? Is this the right way forward? I mean, it's certainly against any kind of consistent um, analysis of government policy. So I would say it's not a good way forward. I mean, we know that we're in a living standards crisis, and this is only about to get worse. Combined, the things you mentioned of the £20 uplift, the introduction of the health and social care levy, which is effectively a 2.5% increase the tax rates, not to mention soaring food prices and increasing the energy cap, will mean that on average, it will be an estimated £1,700 hit per family over the next year. And by far, the biggest impact of that will be the universal credit cut. But altogether, they'll completely compound the cost of living crisis faced by Britons across the country. And the government is saying that it, you know, it has no choice, it has to raise funds for social care. And I'm not against that argument that social care absolutely needs fixing. But there's plenty of other ways that the government could have gone about it. For a start, national insurance, if we're going to stick with national insurance as a a route to pay it, is only paid at a 2% rate once you earn over £50,000. And so that could be raised instead of raising across the spectrum, including those on very low incomes. Or another way that I think also much more sensible is to start taxing income from wealth at around the same rate that we tax income from labour. And I think the reason why people are saying this hits workers as opposed to others is because it's kind of hitting the income from labour, which is already taxed at a very high rate. Whereas if you earn your income from stocks or shares or something like that, you earn your income um, and it's taxed at a much lower rate. So there's plenty of ways that billions of pounds actually could be raised to fund this kind of thing. One example, for example, would be to tax income from capital gains at the same rate as income from labour, which would raise around over £10 billion, which would get the government much further in the direction that they need to go. So for people who've had their universal payment cut and their taxes increase, because as we said, the choice was made to tax workers and not the wealthy, how much are they likely to lose, Sarah? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different estimates about this flying around. And it's because lots of families have very different needs. And it's a very complicated situation to work out. But um, estimates show that on average, it's around £1,700 per family affected. And again, we've got to remember that this is in the context of relatively low income families. So we're not talking about, you know, families that are earning 100 grand with a £1,700 cut. We're talking about families that are maybe collectively earning around £12,000 to £15,000 that will face a significant hit to their incomes. Yeah, I mean, I think that qualifier is really important. And I think that's why perhaps it makes more sense, as we were saying earlier, to kind of speak in percentages rather than figures, because it can be easy to lose track of just the the sheer kind of scale that we're talking about for people whose incomes are, are lower. The last thing on this point is, that you. so you've mentioned the kind of lack of taxing income from wealth and capital gains and things like that. The government has also announced plans to lower the income threshold at which graduates have to start paying back student loans. So 
how will this affect graduates on lower incomes? And is that a kind of similar approach to this? So kind of taxing workers, taxing students, young people rather than rather than the wealthy? I mean, in effect, well, at least the way that student loans have worked in recent years is that they always have been a graduate tax that hit graduates in particular. But what I think this will do will be to raise the effective tax rates for graduates. And it will obviously put off a lot of people from lower income households who might be really worried about having tax rates of over 50% once they graduate, having built up quite a lot of debt. And so I think that's also very short sighted from the government. Okay, I mean, do you want to come in on this? I'm just, I, I personally, I'm just always like kind of nonplussed at the the extent to which it feels like there isn't uh, that much attention given or uprising around what we're talking about. The fact that the government are making decisions to tax workers and the young at such a significant scale, rather than going after the people with the money. And I'm just wondering if you, from a kind of TUC perspective and workers perspective, have anything to share on this. Yeah, so we had a report out just before the changes to how social care is being paid for were announced, where we put forward some of the changes actually that Sarah was talking about. So we called for a tax on the wealthy through equalising capital gains tax. That's the tax that's paid on stocks and shares and second homes, for example, with the rates paid by income tax. And, you know, of course, there's a case for progressive taxation to fund public services. Nobody is trying to get away from that. You know, that's been kind of the basics of how we pay for our public services. But we've got to kind of look at where the money has gone, basically. So, we've seen this huge increase in the wealth gap. So, kind of the typical family on the eve of the pandemic in the richest 10% of households had £1.3 million more in wealth per adult than the typical family in the middle of the wealth distribution. And there's been a huge increase in the wealth gap over the last 10 years and over the past 40 years even more. So when we're looking at how we fund the kind of expansion in decent public services, which provide decent jobs for workers as well, that we need, we've got to look at where the money has actually gone and you know, we would start off by having a look at that huge increase in wealth and how we can tax it fairly. I mean, absolutely. It seems as pressing a task as any other right now. It sounds like less money is going to be going into many people's pockets this winter is is what we're saying here, really. And of course, that's at the same time as the cost of living has been going up. So a month ago, we saw the biggest price rises since records began, partly driven by more expensive food. And also, of course, there's energy prices soaring as well. So let's start with you, Sarah. Is this and the rise in inflation likely to be permanent or temporary? Well, I think it's highly unlikely that the energy cap is going to be reversed. I've seen a lot of things in the news recently, and people are starting to, I guess, recognise the cost of living crisis that is upcoming. But I'd just really like to highlight the cost of living crisis that we've been facing over the last 10 years, even going into the pandemic. Millions of households were living in poverty. Millions of households didn't have enough they needed to kind of afford the basics. It's been a decade of wage freezes for those on the lowest incomes. It's been a decade of money being taken out of the social security system, which is partly why we're still seeing loads of people at food banks, despite there being a £20 uplift to universal credit. The fact is incomes for uh, low income people are just not high enough to live on and are not remotely based on need. And so I think, yes, it is quite possible that food prices are going to go up as a result of Brexit and all sorts of things, and that that might be here to stay. And that's why I think we really need a system that really starts from the point of view is what do people need to live on? 
And how can we achieve that through wages from work, through a social security system? And that's the starting point we should be coming from, not what's the most immediately cheap option (laughs) that we can afford according to the public budgets on a yearly basis. Just to kind of come in there, like I really agree with Sarah, of course, but I think some of the kind of current crisis is just exposing kind of the way we've run our economy, as Sarah says, in the last decade and probably for a lot longer than that. You know, we've had a model which is constantly based on trying to make everything cheaper, on leaving it to the market, on not planning it with workers and not planning it with business either. And some of the kind of supply chain crises we're seeing are because of kind of price rises, you know, prices in rises in the wholesale cost of gas. But some of them are also because, you know, we've finally seen years of downgrading of terms and conditions for workers coming home to roost in the fact that fewer workers want to work in some jobs which are absolutely essential to the way our economy operates. You know, we've got these very complex supply chains, either processing our food or delivering our fuel and other goods to our supermarkets. And at the bottom of those complex supply chains are some very underpaid, some very exploited workers. And I think we're seeing the kind of consequences of that model, you know, really hitting home right now because it's a model that's not resilient enough to cope with change. And as you know, you've all said, I think Sarah was saying, you know, we are going to be facing more change in the years to come particularly driven by the climate, we have to have a more resilient model and we can't build that without decent incomes for workers. Definitely. I mean, I think it is really critical, you know, to emphasise, as you both have, that this is not really a kind of new crisis. It's maybe more the straw that broke the camel's back, as it were. And I, I guess what I'm kind of wondering about is the extent to which we, all the people on this call, think that it is going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. You know, how much worse is it going to get before it gets better I suppose I don't know if that's a question either of you can answer it's more of a personal one I'm feeling relatively despondent so anyone got any hope uh maybe a little bit like um (laughs) you know like I think it's been really interesting actually just listening to some of the business responses to the kind of crisis basically and you are starting to hear a few voices like in some of the sectors where terms and conditions have been absolutely rubbish for years and years and years like hospitality like you guys will know hospitality is a sector which is low paid high levels of abusive workers high levels of insecure contracts and I think you're starting to hear some people in that sector going oh yeah, we should make our businesses slightly nicer places to work. Now, that is not the step change in living standards we are all looking for. You know, we need to win that through bargaining. We need to win that through, you know, stronger legislation. We need to win that through a change of approach. But I think, you know, it feels like a long time ago that we were clapping for key workers. But I think that was maybe the start of a recognition of just who the essential workers are in our society. And maybe, you know, that recognition is the first step to getting something, actually getting the steps in place we need to a new approach. Um, I'm always a bit glass half full, so maybe that's too optimistic. No, that's what we need. I think there's some grounds for hope. No, I know. I, th- I think I think it is, it's necessary. I mean, if we don't have that, what do we have? It's quite a bleak picture. Um, and I needed to hear that. Thank you, Kate. To maybe get a little bit um, gloomy again before we wrap up, I wanted to come to you, Sarah, just to ask, when we look at all these things together, so cuts to universal credit, the end of furlough scheme, higher taxes, rising food and energy costs, who is really being hit the hardest here? And is that a group for whom the kind of living income would would really be targeting to help out? 
Well, sure. I mean, the rising food prices and energy bills, these are the basics, right, that everybody has to buy, regardless of how rich or poor you are. Everyone needs, you know, needs a warm home and everyone needs food on their table. But for low income people, that takes up a lot more of their income. So the rising prices particularly affect the most low income households. Um, And so that is why they would be, I guess, particularly affected or would particularly benefit from a living income. I don't mean to be super gloomy. You haven't got me on the most optimistic day, but I do want to, I guess, also highlight one note for cautious optimism from me is that the pandemic response does show that we could make a big dent in this. Universal credit, although um, it didn't have as much income rise as I think it should have done, it did kind of hold up in terms of getting many people signed onto the system. And the furlough scheme showed that when the government is ambitious, huge action can be taken and pretty quickly as well. That got set up within four weeks. And so it shows that action can be taken. And also it's really shone a spotlight, I think, for many more people on how bad the benefit system is. So as long as there's enough political will and enough pressure from everybody, there is, I think, the potential for change. It's just going to require quite a lot of pressure. Okay, I think we're up to the challenge. Um, but yeah, I think that's a really great note of cautious optimism. Thank you, Sarah. So let's wrap up, Kate. I wanted to talk about how we can make sure that everyone can actually make ends meet this winter and talk a little bit more about solutions, starting with the furlough scheme. So what do you think should happen now? I know we've talked about this a little bit already, but get really kind of specific. Should we extend the furlough scheme? Should we evolve it? How do we move forward? Or how should we move forward? <laughs> Whether it will happen is another thing. <laughs> yeah. I think it's extend and evolve. Um, so I think there's sectors which still need it, basically. And you could have a scheme right now that maybe was more tightly drawn to those sectors which really still are facing kind of long-term effects of the pandemic and of restrictions. But absolutely, we should evolve it. As you know, I was saying, it's been a massive success. It's been, you know, maybe the kind of most successful policy during the pandemic. And there are a lot of areas where we haven't had successful policy. I won't depress us all again by talking about sick pay. Um, So we've been calling for what we've called kind of daughter of furlough, if you like, which is a permanent short-term working scheme. And we think that's something that's going to be really vital to kind of build in the resilience when we need to face future crises. If you think about the kind of adaptive we're going to need to tackle climate change. There may be factories which need to retool, for example, during that period. They might have less work on. And rather than getting rid of their workers, if we had a short-term working scheme in place, those workers could be supported to retrain during that period and then return to work in a greener, you know, more carbon neutral environment. There might be other economic crises we face, you know, whether those are kind of another recession, which is kind of comes from the financial system rather than from a pandemic, whether if unfortunately we do face new strains of the pandemic. But I think we've seen that this type of temporary short time wage support can be an absolutely vital way of protecting workers' jobs and their incomes. And it's something we need to have there for when the next crisis hits. Brilliant. And uh, Sarah, I was going to come to you to ask for your solution. I'm guessing it's the living income. Is there anything else you want to chuck in as a last, uh, another thing that we can do, the cherry on top? I mean, so yeah, uh, obviously, I'm very wedded to the idea of a living income. But just to, I guess, add a little bit more about what that actually looks like in practice. I think that's about making the social security system, all elements of it, including things like furlough, actually, provide a minimum income floor that's actually linked to needs. So ideally, furlough would 
ensure that no one falls below a certain level that would also be reflected in the rest of the social security system like universal credit. Um, And another thing is I think we should be making the social security system much more universal and much more easily accessible to people. So if you think about the tax system, that basically automatically subtracts tax from your payroll kind of automatically whenever your employer notifies the government. And it's not immediately obvious to me why, you know, we should have money taken out automatically, but we don't get money topped back in automatically. So we could have a system that auto-enrolls people into the social security system so that everyone who needs it gets it. And I think that's a pretty good idea as well. I love that. I think, yeah, I often think that the um, a lot of the systems have a way of automating, taking the money, but as you say, not so much supporting you to get it back. So I think that's a brilliant idea. That is all we've got time for this week on our first episode back of the Weekly Economics podcast. Thanks, lovely listener, for being back with us. Kate Bell, thank you so much for joining us. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? What should they read? Uh, go to the TUC website. It's www.tuc.org.uk. Um, and I'm on Twitter at Kate Gobel. Fantastic. And Sarah Arnold, uh, thanks again for joining me. It's always an enlightening pleasure. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? What should they read? Yeah, go to the neweconomics.org website. In particular, I've got a report on there about the living standards crisis and and how that's been shaping up over the last year. Um, Otherwise, I'm on Twitter at Sarah Sarni. Perfect. Like the sandwich. Like the sandwich. Lovely. Thank you both. That was brilliant. That is it for today's weekly economics podcast, but we'll be back soon with more. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Becky Malone and researched by Margaret Walsh. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.